Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. This podcast is funded by listeners like you through Patreon. We want to thank all of our donors because we truly would not be able to produce this podcast or maintain all of the free resources on our website without you. So if you can, please consider supporting us at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists. Even $1 a month helps. And if you donate at least $5 per month, you'll gain access to exclusive content. But either way, you'll be helping us keep the science of learning accessible. You really make a difference and we do really appreciate you. This episode's featured patron is David Handel. David is a retired MD who practiced radiology for 30 years. He's an active entrepreneur, so he started multiple companies and is the CEO of AYTM.com, a market research technology company. David has a love of learning, especially after he discovered the benefits of retrieval practice using flashcards and spacing. He says these strategies changed him from being an average high school student to a straight A's college student and he graduated number one in his medical school class. David launched idorecall.com, a web application that enables students to upload their learning materials into the app and read them in the app. As they go, they can create digital flashcards which get scheduled for practice by a spaced repetition algorithm. When they practice retrieval, if they forget the answer, there is a link on the back of each flashcard that leads to the exact spot in their learning materials so that they can quickly reread the source content, refresh their memory, and return to their practice session. You can try I Do Recall for free for the first 30 days. Hi everyone, this is Cindy Nebel, and I am so excited to be joined today by my very good friend, Pooja Agarwal. Um, Pooja is joining us from Boston, um, and today um, we are going to chat a bunch about how we know each other um, and some of the big problems that we see um, in our arenas. Um, But uh, first things first, I'll go ahead and let Pooja talk a little bit about who she is, let her introduce herself. Go ahead, Pooja. Uh, Hi, everyone. I am so glad to be catching up with you, uh, Cindy, and just chatting again about how we know each other and what we're both doing and up to. Um, I am a cognitive scientist. I have been doing research on how students learn and remember for about 15 years and got my PhD with uh, Dr. Niebel. And uh, I'm also a teacher. I started my career as a K-12 teacher in fourth and fifth grade, and now I teach about 80 college students in Boston every semester. Very cool. Um, And actually, so your position is kind of cool because you're at Berkeley, which so you have kind of a very unique uh, group of students that you teach. Yeah, so I teach uh, science and psychology and neuroscience at the Berkeley College of Music in Boston, not affiliated with Berkeley in California. (laughs) Um, The Berkeley College of Music um, in Boston, I kind of describe it as as similar to Juilliard, but cooler. Uh, so they're musicians <laughs> and it focuses on contemporary music. So anywhere from rock and pop to soul and bluegrass and Latin music and salsa and K-pop and heavy metal. Um, and so the students are 
so much fun to teach. And there is a sort of vibe and, and a student culture on campus that is just different from anywhere else I've taught. You know, they're, they're non-majors. They're not majoring in, they can't even major in psych. They can minor in psychology, but they can't major in it. Um, there is a music education program and a music therapy program, but a lot of my students have gigs in New York and they release albums and some of them have millions of hits on YouTube. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a really, really fun place to teach. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so Pooja sometimes sends me, uh, messages like as she's waiting for her classroom to be open and you can hear music coming from inside the classroom because there's like choir going on or, or I don't know, musical instruments of various kinds. Um, so yeah. Uh, every classroom has a piano. Uh, and during breaks, uh, some of my students will take out their guitars and play. Um, and I've gotten very good at moving pianos. Because, <laughs> you know, I'll arrive in a classroom and they're sitting right in front of the projection screen. Or I want to move the chairs into a circle. And so pretty much every day I'm moving a piano. Yeah, definitely not one of the uh, skills that we were taught in our, like, one class on how to teach in grad school. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that gets into how, how Pooja and I know each other. So um, Pooja and I met at um, Washington University in St. Louis, um, where we were both working on our PhD. Um, Pooja, you want to say anything about our first meeting? <laughs> <laughs> um, we were both interviewing for the same PhD program, and maybe it was the night before the interviews or the night after. I don't, I'm not, you know, you and I know how memory works, so... Who knows what's accurate, but um, <laughs> we were at a restaurant bar and we're hanging out and I don't know how you and I got to talking more than talking to anyone else at this restaurant um, for this sort of interview dinner and you and I just kind of hit it off and then I remember somehow we started talking about how you and I both enjoy dancing uh, and then somehow we started swing dancing together. <laughs> I know there was some random guy there that was that could also swing dance. And so we were like swing dancing at our grad school interview party. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, we hit it off and there was no guarantee we were going to end up in the same Ph.D. program. But we did. Uh, and so we've known each other for almost 15 years. Yeah, it hurts, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I feel old. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it was it, the rest is history or something like that. So we, um, we entered the same cohort. There are about nine of us um, who started our PhDs together. And so you and I got to take our stats classes together and do research together and talk about the blood, sweat, and tears of getting PhDs and the relevance or sometimes the, the distance between our research that we cared about and education and applied research and then doing basic lab research and wrapping that all into the the ever fun process of grad school. Yeah. And so you bring up like while we were in grad school, we had a lot of conversations about how we were learning and doing research on all of these things that had direct applicability to education and yet we had never heard these things prior to, you know, being in that that space um and certainly uh, we weren't seeing very good dissemination to um, educators, to students. Um, and so I think sort of 
separate, yes, definitely separately, we both kind of had these projects that we got involved with or initiated in your case um, to try to make some of that happen. So um, maybe maybe we can go ahead and talk about that a little bit. So um, obviously we have um, learning scientists uh, is, is what I'm involved with, but um, Pooja, as I'm sure most of you already know, um, is involved with retrievalpractice.org. So Pooja, you want to talk a little bit about uh, that and how it got started and what you do? Um, so I founded this website, retrievalpractice.org, and we provide um, quite a number of resources specifically for teachers. So one of the things and how the website started is the creation of these practice guides, um, about 10 pages or less. And the first guide I co-authored with my PhD mentor, uh, Henry Rodiger, one of the authors of Make It Stick. Um, the guide was also co-authored with Mark McDaniel, another author of Make It Stick, and Kathleen McDermott. And we had a grant from the U.S. Department of Education and the Institute of Education Sciences to start doing applied research in actual classrooms. So some memory research was still being done in the lab, but with educationally relevant materials um, or after-school programs. And so in that research with Roddy and Mark and Kathleen, one of the kind of culminations for a grant was to create this practice guide. Um, and so that was the first practice guide and then retrievalpractice.org. Now I have, I think, five guides at least, all written with cognitive scientists. So I've got a guide on spacing with scientist Shanna Carpenter, who's at Iowa State. I've got a guide with Lisa Fazio on early childhood education. There's a guide on transfer of knowledge with Stephen Pan, who's at UCLA. Um, and uh, I've got one coming out soon on metacognition with Lisa Sun at Barnard College. And that's been something I'm really passionate about is sort of this, maybe the start of translation is thinking about how can we make this research bite-sized and provide research-based strategies without being overwhelmed by journal articles and jargon and statistics. So we've got those downloads. Um, I send out weekly emails to about 15,000 teachers around the world. And so that's always a mix of practical teaching strategies, resources, and podcasts I really like, like the learning scientists. Um, and we also provide professional development workshops. I recently made a set of Google Slides and PowerPoint slides available for free for downloads so that teachers can be empowered to do their own professional development workshops. So it's just kind of a mixed bag, but all free, all downloadable um, with content coming out every week. We've got a Facebook group um, with more than a thousand teachers. I'm on social media at Retrieve Learn on Twitter as well. So there's a lot of overlap between what I do with retrievalpractice.org and what you do with the learning scientists. Um, that's just a lot of fun to sort of reflect on the 15 years we've spent together and how our careers have evolved since then and how now our careers are, are overlapping and, and pretty much coming back together on, on like a daily, weekly basis. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right, right? So um, a lot of what we do is really, really similar. Um, I really like the downloadable guides that you have. I mean, so one of the reasons that one of the things I think is great about what we're both doing is a lot of the the um, information that is disseminated, sometimes people go a little too far in trying to make it really um, straightforward and streamlined. 
and they miss the the big like it depends part of psychology that um right we talk about this all the time that um in psychology you know you have an effect that works some of the time and other times it doesn't and if you don't present the research showing you know that retrieval practice is great but you have to do it in a way that is great, right? It doesn't always work to just say, hey, ask a bunch of questions. And so um, that's what I really love about everything that we have coming out is is that, um, you know, you make a point to tell people how to do something instead of just do it. And I think that's a really, really important um, piece of, of science dissemination. Well, and um, I, for both of us and with the science dissemination, I also think it's really important for scientists to be doing that disseminating. Um, there's an element, of course, of educators doing great work and disseminating what works in their classroom and educators disseminating science. There's also the importance of us, the learning scientists, retrievalpractice.org, cognitive scientists in our field, getting engaged in that conversation you and I understand all of the jargon and the T-values and the regressions and what ANOVAs are and what's the difference between between and within subject designs. And so that nuance and that understanding of research and that jargon helps us collectively, learning scientists, retrieval practice, to be able to disseminate this research in a way that I think is unique with the understanding we bring. We have done that blood, sweat, and tears. We know what it's like to run an experiment. We know what it's like for students and college students to drop out. Um, and I, I, I feel that it's it's really important that we as scientists are, are doing that as well. And we're all teachers too, right? I mean, you and, and Megan and um, Althea and Carolina, and we all have college students and we're all teachers too. And I think we bring both of those things together with, with our kind of combined initiatives. Yeah, I like what you said about um, the fact that there needs to be this dialogue between educators and scientists too though, and it really needs to go both ways. So um, I know just being involved with the learning scientists and, and doing some professional development workshops and things and really having some conversations with educators, I've learned a lot about um, not just about the way that we go about talking to educators, which certainly we've we've learned a lot there. Um, starting out, I don't think we necessarily approached everything the best way, but moving forward, uh, it's also about learning what are the issues that are actually happening in real classrooms. Because, I I mean, we are in real classrooms, but they're higher education classrooms, and the issues. Certainly the administrative kind of issues are far different. The demands that are on teachers are far different, I think. So, um, Pooja, is your favorite researcher done the stuff that's in classrooms? Or do you have some other like fun project that you did that, that was outside the classroom? Or is, is the best stuff that you've done always been your classroom research? What do you think? The best stuff has always been the classroom research, for sure. Um, and, and I've published basic laboratory research. One of my first research studies was looking at retrieval practice, but whether it's beneficial to do open book testing or open book quizzes versus closed book quizzes. And that research idea coming out of my senior year of college came directly from when I was a student teacher in a fifth grade classroom. I was in this fifth grade classroom um, outside of St. Louis and I was doing all this research at WashU in undergrad. I, I went to Washington University in St. Louis for undergrad as well. And I was doing this basic lab research, but then I had this parallel um, 
experiences in the classroom and I kept thinking, well, there's all this open book retrieval practice, but then in the lab, we never do open book retrieval practice, so let's start doing it. And it was just kind of one of these weird things because with first dipping my toes into science, I just thought, how, how has no one done this before? <laughs> like, wait, this is how science works? Um, and so that was really fun, was my first study. And um, me and, and Roddy Rodiger did a follow-up study on how students study if they know if they're going to have an open book versus a closed book quiz. And we found in, in just our one study, right, it depends, we found in just our one study that students study less if they know it's an open book quiz, and so their long-term retention is reduced. Um, but coming back to the question, my by far the, the most fun intellectually, rigorously, in an applied way has been classroom research. And so that's the, the Columbia Middle School stuff? Is that what you're talking about right now? Yeah, so starting back in 2006, um, again, we received this grant from the Department of Education, and we started doing research in Patrice Bain's classroom at Columbia Middle School uh, outside of St. Louis and Illinois. And Patrice and I hit it off. We've also known each other for about 15 years. And I, right after I graduated from undergrad is when this grant started. And so I sat in Patrice's classroom eight hours a day five days a week, just observing what an excellent veteran teacher does. And I got to just sit there and explore, gee, if, if we wanted to do rigorous scientific research in the way we do in laboratory settings, what would that look like in Patrice's classroom? And so Patrice and I got to start having these dialogues that people in our scientific field really never had to that extent of being in a classroom every day, day in and day out. And so Patrice and I, um, with Roddy and Mark and Kathleen at WashU, started doing this research where we just took the retrieval practice Patrice was already doing and did not change her lesson plans, did not change her curricula. We just kind of modified. Sometimes students got quizzed. Let's say if, if students were learning a chapter on ancient Egypt, some, some of that content would be on quizzes and some of that content would not be on quizzes, what we call within subject design. So it wasn't as though some of our classes got retrieval practice and some of them didn't. Everyone got retrieval practice, but we were able to just make this small tweak. And so I still remember getting all of this data from the ancient Egypt unit and pulling it all together in a spreadsheet and staring at it because I just, I wasn't, I was so excited to see what the results were. But of course, when we play around with, with Excel and macros and pivot tables, I'm looking at this and I'm going like, am I looking at this the right way? This doesn't make sense. But no one had ever done an experiment with 200 sixth graders with retrieval practice. Like we had just never done that before. So it was just the coolest thing. I was sitting in this little meeting room next to Patrice's classroom, and it was the first time where I had that validation of doing applied research, doing it with a teacher, and seeing that something as simple as retrieval practice improve students' learning. And so it, it in retrospect, it was just the coolest thing ever. And so Patrice and I have stayed in touch. Uh, she was at my wedding. <laughs> uh, and we recently wrote a book together. 
Yeah, that's right. So, and uh, well, why don't we go ahead since you mentioned it? Let's go ahead and talk about the book a little bit. Um, so the book is called Powerful Teaching. Um, came out when did it come out, PJ? Uh, in June, last uh, June of 2019. So about seven, eight months ago. Right after I had a baby, which is why I d- could not remember that time in my life at all. <laughs> um, yeah, and so the book has been, I mean, on fire. Like, people seem really, really excited about it. Um, I was telling Pooja uh, behind me, you can't see it, but behind me I have a bookshelf that has the book on the shelf. And uh, in my... Um, I teach online for Vanderbilt, and so students can see my bookshelf behind me. And uh, I've had a few students who are like, oh, that's so exciting. You have powerful teaching behind you on the shelf. Um, So it's been very, very well received. Um, But can you tell us just a little bit, Pooja, about sort of the the design for the book? Like, you know, what's the content, broadly speaking? Um, I co-authored the book with Patrice, and so again, it was nice for us to bring together my background as a cognitive scientist and my background as a teacher with Patrice's background as a veteran middle school teacher and also her understanding and engagement with this research that she's been applying in her teaching. And we really wanted powerful teaching to build on a lot of the cognitive science research that has been translated as well. So with my PhD mentor, Roddy, and and with my colleague, Margaret Daniel, they published this book, Make It Stick, in 2014, which has been incredibly successful. And it has this storytelling approach with the first author, Peter Brown, who's a novelist, to talk about how memory works. And Make It Stick, as I'm sure many listeners know, is, is... appeals to a broad audience to understand, gee, why is it that we forget names and how can I remember things better? And Patrice and I wanted to build on that work and make it practical in classrooms. So what does it mean when you see 80 college students a day and you want to apply these principles from the lab and from applied research, like what does that look like? And so it was so rewarding. It took Patrice and I about a year to write the book. And it was so rewarding for Patrice and I to have conversations we've been having for 15 years. But I also got to learn more about how she applies this in her classroom. And I got to share how I applied in my classroom. And because of this retrievalpractice.org website and social media, we started collecting all these examples from teachers around the world. So with powerful teaching, we like to think of it as make it stick for the classroom, sort of. Um, And we recently have had questions from teachers who who wonder, you know, should I read powerful teaching first and then make it stick so that I'm going from the practical classroom application to a broader understanding of the research? Or should I read make it stick first as a broad overview and then read powerful teaching? And it's just been a fun dialogue on our Facebook, our Powerful Teaching Facebook group. Um, and, and they really go hand in hand. And it really depends on what readers are interested in, in getting out of either book. So again, it, it's just a way for us to bring the research together, but to make it practical when you've got snow days and fire alarms and in higher ed when you've got midterms and finals. And sometimes we have autonomy over our classes and sometimes we don't. Um, just a, another point is that I've, I've long felt this way and writing with Patrice kind of solidified my thinking that teaching in higher ed and teaching in K-12 has its differences, 
but I think it has a lot more similarities than people realize. And so one thing we're proud of in Powerful Teaching is that we don't really split up, you know, here's a chapter for higher ed and here's a chapter for K-12 because all of this research has been demonstrated to be effective for all ages and all content areas, but then on a day-to-day -day basis, how we teach and how students learn across the board is pretty similar and consistent, which I think is, is really neat. Yeah, um, and I think it even it even goes a little bit further than that. Um, I, so teaching the students that I do at, uh, in Vanderbilt's EDD program, some of them are coming from the corporate world, and we have lots of conversations about how this research that was done on you know sixth graders or done on college students applies at that level, and um, it does, right? I mean, these are these are processes that really are how human memory works. And so um, you can take that into a, an HR training room or um, wherever you need to. Um, the same basic principles, I think, apply. Like you said, sort of the external demands might be slightly different between having snow days and fire alarms um, versus having, um, you know, adult learners in a corporate training room who might only have an hour to learn most of what they need to learn. Uh, but the processes are pretty much the same. So um, I, I think that... Um, it's, it's a really cool book. Uh, it's really cool work in general um, for educators, but it can go way beyond education too, which I think is, is good and important. You want to take a, just a quick second and talk about sort of future directions a little bit, Pooja. Like, um, you know, we're both in this world of trying to improve education, but where do we go from here? Um, so we're, we're disseminating. We've got stuff that can be downloaded. We've got books. How do, we, how do we take the next step? What, what do you think? I've been thinking a lot about this next step. And as you said, with the learning scientists and retrievalpractice.org and, and many people out there, um, you know, Jennifer Gonzalez and Blake Harvard and um, Doug Lamov and Dan Willingham, we're all doing a lot of this translational work. And I now am thinking a lot about the actual impact. And what I mean by impact is, in some literal ways, changing human behavior. And you and I, Cindy, have studied human behavior for 15 years, and we know that it's really hard to change human beings. <laughs> or at least really hard. Amen. Yes. Really hard to change what we do, right? So it's yep. one thing for me to say, I'm going to exercise every day, or I'm going to exercise twice a week, or I'm going to exercise however often, and it's another thing to actually do it. And so in parallel, it's one thing to say, wow, there's all this cool cognitive science research and it has all of these huge implications on learning and teaching and it's another thing to do it, right? Yeah, I've actually kind of had the same sort of thinking of like, how do we make that happen? And uh, one of the things you said, and I'll let you finish, I know you weren't, you weren't done with your thought, um, but one of the things I've been thinking is, is to... It would be really nice if we didn't have to change behavior, but we could initiate it correctly from the beginning, right? Through maybe teacher training programs and that kind of thing. Um, but go ahead with what you were going to say. Well, it, it's similar to what I was going to say is just where does this come into play? I think it's really important to be disseminating and translating this research for teacher training programs and pre-service teachers. When I went through getting certification in elementary ed when I was in college, it wasn't the most rigorous. 
and there wasn't a whole lot of research. I was going from one side of campus doing research to the other side of campus of learning about how to teach, but there was just something missing. And I think the research in our field has a lot to offer in teacher training programs and teacher training has a lot to offer to inform our research. I've also just been thinking a lot about sort of top-down approaches versus bottom-up, and both are valuable. Um, so in, in education systems, whether it's K-12 or higher ed or in the United States or elsewhere, do we start infusing these strategies teacher by teacher, classroom by classroom, student by student, parent by parent? And what does that look like and how does that affect learning in similar and different ways from almost a top-down approach? What does it mean if a whole school decides we are going to build a community with students, teachers, and parents to be doing things in line with this research, to debunk neuromyths and learning myths? If a whole school or a school district can get on board with that, imagine the amount of impact that can have. And so I, I see it both ways. When I hear from teachers about our book, on an individual level, they are energized to put in these small tweaks into what they're doing. It doesn't take like overhauling and promising I'm gonna go to the gym every day, right? Something I love about what you and I do, Cindy, is coming up with these small applicable strategies. The next, and we're already raising awareness and doing the translation, but the next step is, is what does this mean on a broader level? So I was just reading an article today, and I think a lot about parallels to medicine. Medicine has a lot of evidence-based practices, but they take time. And in education and in medicine, we're impatient. We want things to get better. We want to transform. We want to improve the world and make it a better place. And so even in medicine, that those evidence-based practices take some time. And I'm really thinking hard about Maybe we can't speed up that time, but even if we're raising awareness, does that come from teacher training programs? Does that come from school administrators and faculty teaching centers in higher ed? Or does it come teacher by teacher in their classrooms and then sort of spreading from there? So I don't have any answer for what comes next, but I'm having a lot of fun thinking about it. Yeah, and I think we're in the, we're in the same place, right? That's that is sort of the next step of okay, we've we're we're making it accessible, but now how do we actually get it get it into the classroom? Um, and yeah, I think the the I've been having the same sort of conversations and thoughts about this top down versus bottom up approach of and and even um, even getting individuals aware, right? So we have everything readily available on websites, right? It's there. Um, it is at, at fingertips, but there has to be um, awareness that that is out there or um, interest in looking for it in order for people to find it. Um, and so even even trying to, to get on the radar, I think, in a lot of places is, is a lot of what we've been talking about, too. Um, well, that's about all the time that we have for um, today. But I want to thank you so much, Pooja, for, for chatting with me today. It's so good to see you. It's been a while. And um, we hope that you've enjoyed our little crossover event here. And um, I think we'll wrap it up there. All right. So thanks, Pooja. This episode is funded by listeners like you. To support our work and gain access to exclusive content, visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists.